And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you this morning to turn to John chapter 7. We're going to spend one more Sunday, this Sunday, in our series in the Gospel of John. And then the next couple of weeks, we will focus in on the Christmas story in a little more uh, detail. But John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37, is where we're going to be today. John 7, beginning in verse 37. Last week, uh, as, we, as we began here in John 7, you may remember that uh, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles had begun in Jerusalem, and, and there were a lot of arguments uh, against Christ or towards Christ, trying to get him to prove himself, and uh, there were arguments against Jesus, doubting Jesus, and we addressed some of those criticisms and arguments uh, specifically from the words of Jesus himself, how he responded to those arguments. And there's, there's a lot that we, we learned out of that. Um, and sometimes when we go through these Gospels and we get into these sections of, of the life of Christ and the teachings and the interactions, uh, there's some, some pretty heady, difficult or challenging stuff that comes up. And, and today is no different, but... The backdrop for what we're going to talk about today continues to be this Feast of the Tabernacles. And the Feast of the Tabernacles occurred in the fall, typically in in autumn. It was one of the three main Jewish feasts. It was a time where uh, the Jews would, um, they would leave their homes and they would go live in shelters or tents or, or booths and they would live out in the open in remembrance for God's presence with them as they wandered uh, in the midst of being delivered from the, uh, their captives in Egypt. It was also a time where there was a celebration of the fall harvest. They called it the, the feast or the celebration of ingathering. Ingathering meaning that when all the agricultural crops would come in and they would give thanks to God for the provision. And that's the backdrop because it was a it was a week long, a seven day long feast, and the climax really was the last day of this feast because something very peculiar and special would go on in Jerusalem. So I want to give you this sort of context before we even get into uh, verse thirty seven. Every day, what would happen is during those seven days, the feast of ingathering, the feast of tabernacles, families would bring fruit as an offering, and they would bring palm branches, and they would cover the altar of the temple with the palm branches, and they would present the fruit as an offering. Now, this is sort of celebrating and in keeping with God's provision and God's care. But on the last day, something very unique and special would happen. The high priest would take a golden pitcher, a pitcher of water, while not filled with water yet, he would take the golden pitcher and he would lead a processional down the streets of Jerusalem to the Pool of Siloam, where they would descend down to the Pool of Siloam and they would fill the pitcher with water and they would head back to the temple. They would head back to the altar. Now, the Pool of Siloam currently is just outside the walls of Jerusalem, is what of is part of what was called the ancient city of David. And archaeologists just recently uncovered the Pool of Siloam 
uh, not that long ago. And today you can go to Jerusalem, you can actually go down the stairs, and you can visit and see the Pool of Siloam. Um, but the Pool of Siloam was came into existence as a result of King Hezekiah rebuilding tunnels and redirecting water into the ancient city of Jerusalem in order to have a water supply inside the fortified city for when outside forces like the Assyrians would attack. So it really was a, a, a point of only life, the only life-sustaining water that existed in the city of Jerusalem as the Assyrians and the outside forces would bombard the city of Jerusalem in an effort to take it over, which eventually they did. So at the pool of Siloam, the high priest would go down and he would fill up the gold pitcher and the processional would turn back around and as it passed through the water gate on its way back into the main city of Jerusalem, they would exclaim Isaiah 12.3. With a loud voice, all the people in the processional would holler out, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And when the pitcher reached the altar, the priest and would, all these people would watch on as the priest would take the pitcher of water and he would pour it over the altar. And as he poured it over the altar, all the people would exclaim Psalm 118, verse 25, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity, is what they would say. Now, sounds like a big deal. This processional would occur seven times. They would leave the temple, they would go to the pool of Siloam, they would fill up the gold pitcher, they would head back in through the water gate, they would head through the streets of Jerusalem, they would exclaim the text of Isaiah 3 and Psalm 118.25, and they would get to the altar, you know, Lord, do send prosperity, is what they would say. And even today, there are a lot of preachers that still stand in the pulpit and they exclaim, Lord, do send prosperity, but it's different than the prosperity that the Lord Jesus came to send. This whole processional, it would build with each passing. You know, as they approached the seventh, the intensity in the streets and the, the volume and the, the anticipation would just get louder and louder. If you've ever been to a parade and as you near the end of the parade, I can remember being at the Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade, and as you get towards the end, you just kind of know that Santa Claus is coming, and, the, and this energy this, of the children just gets more and higher and higher, and it would be the same as they would get to the end of this processional times seven. You can imagine the ecstasy and the drama increasing in the passion with each pass and with each pour until they get to the end and the last pass of the processional. Now we see the climax of this day's events arrives and the processional passes by with the golden pitcher in hand as the high priest heads towards the altar to pour that last golden pitcher of water on to say these words of, you know, we... We dip the water in to receive salvation. And Lord, we beseech Thee to send prosperity. And as it passes by the Lord Jesus teaching in Jerusalem, this happens. The golden pitcher of water passes Him by. And we read in verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and He cried out for everybody to hear. He said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. See, what they didn't know and what our children just uh, reinforced with us is that Jesus wasn't from Galilee. He taught in Galilee. I mean, Galilee was his stomping ground. It was his main place of ministry. But Jesus was from Bethlehem. He was born there. They were missing the signs. So, this water passes by, and they're in this very symbolic ritual where they're asking the Lord to give salvation. And what does salvation look like to the Jews? Salvation looks like prosperity. That's what it looks like to them. And just as a side, that teaching still exists today, doesn't it? If you want salvation... If you want the assurance of a joyous and fulfilled life, you need prosperity. Prosperity comes from things. Prosperity is the tangible. Prosperity is the next bumper crop that comes in. Prosperity is the next job that pays more. Prosperity is the next superficial joy that might fill your heart for just a a few days more. That's what they're exclaiming. Lord, send us another bumper crop. Lord, give us these good things. That's what we want. And as it passes by Jesus, Jesus says, Hello, I'm I'm the wellspring of life. I'm the living water. Drink of me. You don't need golden pitchers poured over the altar. I am the keeper of the altar. I am the God that you seek. Fill yourself with me if you want fulfillment. It's the natural bent of a human being to thirst. It's going to happen. But our hearts crave fulfillment in the form of tangible prosperity. When We view God as somebody who exists to serve us in this way. God does not exist to serve you and I in a form of some sort of tangible prosperity. God doesn't exist in order to make sure that we get what we want. That's not who God is. They're screaming out, send us prosperity. And what Jesus claims is to meet our needs, 
the needs of a thirst that's deeper than anything that we can even comprehend in our lives today. With emphasis, teachers would sit. Uh, nowadays, you know, a teacher gets up like I do, you get up in front of a room, you lecture. But rabbinical teachers who would teach on the street, they would sit and a crowd would gather around them and they would teach in that manner. And it says that Jesus, as the, as the golden pitcher passes by, Jesus stands, he rises to his feet. And he doesn't just merely state it for those who are sitting there listening to him. He stated it for everybody who is passing by to hear when he says, I am living water. Me, I'm the one that will fill you with streams of living water. Drink of me. Enough with the golden pitcher. Drink of me if you want to be filled. Jesus was looking to stand out. And this would have been a, I can't even begin to express to you how shocking of a moment this would have been. This, this was, there were three feasts. This was the highest feast. This was the climax moment of the highest feast. And at this moment, our Lord stands up and says, drink of me. I'm the culmination of all the feasts that you celebrate. Drink of me. So the quick question this morning is this, from this text, what can we learn about Jesus meeting our thirst? How does Jesus meet our thirst? Because clearly He states here that that's what He does. I think the first thing to keep in mind is this. You have to operate, we have to operate from a realm where we know that Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the source of life. This entire ritual, this processional, was based upon recognizing the provision of God for the source of life. And Jesus pronounces that He is the source of life. Living waters. Life is the result of believing in Him. There's no life apart from Christ. I mean, yeah, you, you may live 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. You may live, but you're not really going to live. And when those 90 years are up, you will not live eternally without Christ. So Jesus says, I'm the source of life. Remember what he told the woman at the well a few chapters earlier in John 4. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This woman's thinking tangible water. She's thinking Jacob drank of this water and he his thirst was met. He even brought his livestock here. They drank of this water and then that livestock produced provision for him. Jacob's life was sustained by this water. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just talking about sustaining this life. I'm talking about giving you eternal life. You want real life, drink of me. 
Drink of me. But how many of us, if we're being honest, in our minds, our human minds, even if we're believers in Christ, we still see this Jesus as a man who exists to get us through the day. Or a man who exists to meet a specific need. Or a man, I read a book one time, it was called Jesus, the Greatest Counselor Who Ever Lived. It was this weird blending of, I didn't even get through the whole book. It was this weird blending of like psychobabble therapy applied to or placed upon Jesus. It wasn't even taken from the scriptures. And it was the weirdest thing. It was like, you want to be healthy? It was like Tony Robbins meets Jesus, you know? And it, it was, you want to feel better about yourself? This is what Jesus would want for your life. And I'm not saying that Jesus can't help you feel better about yourself. And I'm not saying that Jesus can't help you deal with the day at hand. I'm just saying this. The main reason Jesus Christ came into the world was to deal with my sin and your sin and to be a propitiation for that, which means to pay for it so that you and I can have eternal life. You want to get out of this life and experience real, meaningful, eternal life. It starts by drinking deeply of Christ. That's what Jesus is telling the processional at that high point of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. This idea of Christ being living water, it's just, it's, it, no pun intended, it's just flowing through the entire text of Scripture. This summer I stood on top of the Mount of Olives and um, one of the things that started to come to my mind was actually end times. And what the Bible says will happen on the Mount of Olives. And, and I want to share with you that because we started reading some scriptures, uh, some pastors and myself, we started reading some scriptures one to another as we were standing up there. And initially my focus was, and rightfully so, on the teachings that took place on the Mount of Olives. My focus was just down below on the Garden of Gethsemane, thinking about that night that Jesus prayed there, the night before he was crucified. And I was, I was anxious to get there. You know, we walked down a, a trail from the top of the Mount of Olives, past the largest Jewish cemetery in the world, overlooking the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And we headed down to the Mount of Olives, or down to the Garden of Gethsemane. But while we're standing on the Mount of Olives, someone read this verse, and it reminded me of a significant time to come. Zechariah chapter 14. On that day, he's talking about the coming Messiah, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azai, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. And on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And it shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. 
there will come a time where the Lord Jesus Christ will set His feet upon the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives will split in two and the earthquake will be so great that people will flee to the valleys and when the Lord stands there, the great living waters will flow from east to west so that everyone who partakes in Him shall drink deeply of the living water for all eternity. You can go to the book of Revelation and you can see the living waters flow right by the tree of life. That's what eternity looks like for us. Living water is who Jesus is. Where Jesus goes, He brings life. This is what we trust in. The second way Jesus meets our thirst is this. Jesus brings revitalization and energy to you and to I. He brings revitalization and energy. When you think about water, without water there is no life, is there? Now the average person can live up to a month or more without food. But a person cannot survive any longer than, say, three to seven days without water. And seven days is pushing it. Three days and your life is pretty miserable if you've not had a drink. Without water, there's no life. Life can't be sustained. And that's, I think that's why every time a space agency sends some sort of probe to outer space and they want to study a planet or an asteroid, what's the main thing that they're looking for? Water. I haven't found any yet. That's what makes our planet so unique. It's almost like this planet was designed to sustain life. It's almost like this planet was a special place that God created for His creation to exist. And here we stand, here we drink of water, and we go to our refrigerator, we pull out a pitcher of tea, or if you're Mike Barnhart, you pull out ten pitchers of tea, and you drink and drink and drink and drink, you pull out a, a, a pitcher of ice water or lemonade, and we don't even think twice about it. I always got ice cubes at the ready. It's never a big deal. But I would imagine at some point in your life, you've gone a long time without a drink. You've been really thirsty. Back in the day, you know, when I was in high school, coaches used to be able to dangle water over your head for performance. You would go to summer practices and coaches would say, run it one more time if you want to drink. Do it right and then we'll take a drink break. Nowadays those guys are called um, prisoners. But back then coaches used to say, you know, they, but you would get so thirsty that stuff started to not work. Like your mind would get weird on you. Your lips would turn dry. Things begin shutting down. You can't think clearly. And then all of a sudden, you start getting headaches and your joints start to ache. Have you ever had the flu and you just you can't keep anything down and you're dehydrated and your joints ache and your, your mind just goes all over the place? That's what happens when you don't drink. Life becomes somewhat unbearable. Your body is 60 to 70% water. And actually even higher than that for a newborn. I learned that. It's almost 75% water when an infant comes into the world. By the time you're of your you know, teens and 20s, that has dropped down to closer to 60-65%. Um, but you 
can remember in those moments of thirst how one small drink changes everything. You just take a little sip and you feel revitalized. You feel like you have life about you again. And as it is with Christ. For the person who comes to Christ, they may not even realize it at the time, how dehydrated they are. They don't know how thirsty they really are for something meaningful, something that's going to give them purpose, something that's going to add real value to who they are, something that's going to give them deep, meaningful existence. And then they drink of Jesus and everything changes. Everything changes. You have something to live for now. You have an energy and a focus that you never thought you had before. And here's the thing. When you are thirsty in real life, you're parched. Your mind begins to shut down. You don't think clearly. You don't understand things. You don't comprehend. And the same is true with Christ. You look at the Scriptures. You consider the things of God. You can't discern them because your mind is incapable of understanding that which is life because you've not drank of real life yet. And then when you drink of Christ, the living water, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And then all of a sudden, the Scriptures of God just come alive and you get hungry for this. You thirst for more of this. You want it. Every morning I wake up and I I anxiously go to the Word of God and I think, what does God have to say to me today? I've been going through the Proverbs, just prodding through them every morning right now and it's so hard. And every morning my kids are probably like, enough, Dad, because I read something and if one of my children is there, I'll be like, Annie, 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 listen to this. The Lord says that only the wise keep the counsel of wisdom and wise people, but fools run with mockers. She's like, whatever. I'm like, oh, that's great stuff. You know, but when you're in rebellion, when you're dehydrated, that doesn't make any sense to you. You don't want to hear that stuff. But when you've drank, when you've drank of Jesus Christ, that's your existence. You hear that stuff and you're like, yeah, I want to run with wise people. No mockers for me. No mockers for me. God fills us with living water and things just become clear because He gives us a revitalization and an energy about our life. In Matthew 5, 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And in the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires, here it is again, take the water of life without price. Jesus is the water of life. He's begging us to come and drink of Him and see what real meaningful life looks like. So, Jesus is the source of life. Jesus brings revitalization and energy. And the other truth we can learn is this. Jesus brings refreshing. He brings refreshing. Man, I can remember when my coach said, all right, enough, take a water break. Oh, my goodness. You're knocking guys out of the way. I mean, just hammering them. Freshmen, get to the back. You know, seniors, you get water first. It was always the way it was. And when you would drink of that, you felt like you were actually becoming a new person at that moment. Even just that first sip of cool water was so refreshing. And here's the deal. 
Jesus didn't call us to fill ourselves, did he? You'll see nowhere in Scripture where Jesus says, satisfy yourselves, fill yourselves. Jesus doesn't call us to manufacture our own joy and refreshing. Why? Because it's impossible. It's impossible. See, the problem is we're incapable of producing any joy in our life that lasts. True story. You cannot produce joy in your life that will last. You think that, you know, well, we're, we're finally going to get married and then I'm going to be really happy forever. Or we're going to have children and they're going to make me happy forever. And then they go away. And he said, well, I'm finally going to get that job and that's going to make me filled with joy. Or we're going to finally find the right church and that place is going to bring me joy. Or we just need to keep the right company of friends. You know, the list is on and on and on. If my sports team will just win the championship once, then I'll be happy. No. Uh, we can't manufacture this stuff. There has to be a joy that lasts. There has to be a refreshing that comes that doesn't diminish. That's Christ. Much like the psalmist said in one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 42, Very difficult to read this this week as I did not see one deer in the woods. But I was encouraged by this. A white-tailed deer drinks from the creek. I want to drink God. Deep drafts of God. I'm thirsty for God alive. I wonder, will I ever make it? Arrive and drink in God's presence. Maybe this sounds like you folks. I'm on a diet of tears. Tears for breakfast, tears for supper. All day long, people knock at my door, pestering. Where is this God of yours? These are the things I go over and over, emptying out the pockets of my life. I was always at the head of the worshiping crowd, right out in front, leading them all, eager to arrive and worship, shouting praises, singing thanksgiving, celebrating all of us, God's feast. Why are you down in the dumps, dear soul? Why are you crying the blues? Fix my eyes on God. Soon I'll be praising again. He puts a smile on my face. He's my God. I love that. I want to drink deep drafts of God. I want to drink so deeply that I literally put my head in the stream and immerse myself in who God is. Because that's when, as the psalmist found out, life is circumstantial, is it not? Life goes like this. There are going to be times where you are going to be in the dumps. You're going to feel like you're living on a diet of tears, suffering, and heartache. And there's only one true way that you can receive refreshing during those times. Drink deeply of God. Drink deeply of God. When Christ says, I'm living water, you know, that person you loved, they walked away from you and they turned their back on you. Because, you know why that hurts? Because people always do that. If you're trusting in another human being to make you happy, to give you a time or a season or a life of refreshing and joy, it's impossible. Only one person can do that, and that's Christ. Drink of me, Jesus screams out. Water is... Not just giving of life, but 
Sometimes drinking of water is, is a matter of living joyously, living refreshed. Water can soothe. Water can cool. Water can bring joy. Lastly this morning, Jesus is a source of life. Jesus brings revitalization and energy. Jesus brings refreshing. And Jesus brings exponential thirst quenching. Exponential thirst quenching. Where do I get this from? These words are very telling. In verse 38 of John 7, it says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Through the Holy Spirit, the rivers of living water of Jesus Christ himself will flow from you. Drinking of Jesus isn't something that's simply meant for you. Jesus and drinking of him as living water is meant to produce in you something that flows outward for every other thirsty soul that you come across. Out. From the Greek word, this simple word, ek, it means from a point of origin away, flowing away, outward. Someplace deep within you, this stuff bubbles up and just explodes outward. And from that will come what is written in Greek, potamos. It's a Greek word for stream or river. But it's not just stream or river like um, some, some little babbling brook that's flowing. This means a pregnant river. This means a river that is at flood stage. A river that is so powerful it's impossible to contain. That's what Jesus says. Out of you who drink of me will flow a flood of living water. We look at our lives and what are we doing? We're constantly looking for ways to cap this baby off. Right? I don't want to be offensive. I don't want to be politically incorrect. I certainly don't want to make people uncomfortable. So maybe if I just, you know, tone it down, we can, I can calm this whole raging flood that's within me. And I'm just here to give you permission this morning. Those days got to stop. We exist to pour out the living water of Jesus Christ so that other people who are thirsty, and maybe they don't even know it, they're trying to manufacture joy and life on their own, they need to hear about Christ and the goodness. There are people who are so despondent. They're struggling in their depression. They're struggling in their heartache and their loss. They're struggling in knowing the meaning of their own life. And they need, the deep, they need those deep drafts of God in order that they can find purpose and refreshing. There's massive amounts of life flowing out of you. Enough for you and an exponentially increasing number of other people. So the question here is this. Do others taste living water out of your life? Who was the last person that drank deeply of Christ as a result of you? And in typical fashion... This text closes with various responses to Christ. And it's still that way today. It says that um, some of the people continued to question. 
Some believed. Some said, this, this is the Christ. And some who were doubters and remain militantly opposed to who Jesus is. Which are you today? Are you here in this place as a person who has been filled with living water to the point where other people could drink of you and taste life that can only come through Christ? Or are you here today as a person who is for maybe a long time or a short time just kind of content to hang out on the sideline, maybe dabble your feet in this Christianity, a religious thing, but never really drink of who Jesus is. Because when He died on the cross, He died on the cross so that you might drink of Him and live in Him and for Him. Or maybe you've been in that position where you're like, you know what, I don't understand everything in the Bible, and this whole Jesus thing is a complete offense to me, and I don't want anything to do with Him. Which is honestly the scariest place to be. God's here in this place today and He's inviting you to drink deeply of Him. If you've not done that, that's the prayer I want to close with. And I'm honestly, I'm just going to be real straight up. I'm going to ask and beg God that He speak to your heart this morning so that you might trust in Him and drink deeply of Jesus and receive eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.